Hey, everyone. Welcome to the No Barriers podcast. I got um, Billy Lister with me today. I'm really excited. You're co-hosting with me, Billy. Billy is a Paralympic uh, cyclist and uh, No Barriers ambassador and recent uh, board member of No Barriers. We just voted you in a couple days ago, Billy, if you don't know that yet. Yeah, I I do. I was was, was shared with the news with and uh, is a... uh, a dream come true, my friend, and uh, I am uh, um, I'm very energized to uh, you know to be a part of this uh, you know this podcast as a newly minted uh, board member um, yeah. and have a tremendously fascinating conversation today. <laughs> well, yeah, and so Billy joins me from time to time. It's great to hear your voice, and we have Patrick aboard. Man, Patrick, it's so great. I got to meet you last summer at this MIT event where they were opening up a bionics center at MIT. And it was just this incredible star-studded event. And you were the moderator. And I just thought, man, this guy's amazing. And I want to get him on the podcast. So thanks for joining us. That was a fun night, wasn't it? No, it was an amazing event. And uh, yeah, very, very grateful to be here. So thank you for having me. Yeah. I don't know if we're allowed to uh, name drop, but uh, there were some pretty cool people like Robert Downey Jr. And <laughs> just uh, amazing people that were part of that event. Hugh Herr, who's uh kind of a mentor for a lot of us. He's a, uh, the head of the biomechatronics laboratory at MIT and one of the founders of No Barriers as well. So uh, that was fun to get to hang out with you guys. Yeah, it was a really great evening, wasn't it? Yeah. And, you know, the, the problem is MI, with MIT is that you talk to all these researchers and scientists and they're all like doing something to change the world and you just feel like a loser when you walk out of there. <laughs> Couldn't have yeah. said it better myself. <laughs> so, uh, Patrick, I, I want to start with just sort of like just a natural, maybe obvious place to begin, which was, you know, I, I researched you, I, I've, I've checked out a lot of videos, your TED Talks and things like that, and you lost uh, your, your leg and your, your, your hand and your fingers to sepsis. And I know that's a big part of your message to get out there, you know, this thing that most people don't even know anything about. Uh, start us out with with sepsis and just like a little bit of a 101 on what happened. Yeah, absolutely. So sepsis is um, sepsis is the most common cause of like infection leading to death, right? It yeah. kills one person globally every three and a half seconds. So it's incredibly common, but most people aren't aware of it because so often in hospital situations, it goes down as a complication, right? So you hear of somebody go in with pneumonia uh, and they unfortunately pass away because of a complication and you never really give that thing a name. Right. Um, but sepsis is what that is. And it's, as I said, incredibly common. And it is your body's response to infection. So it's not something that you vaccinate against. It's not something that you're more likely to get if you're, you know, young or old or male or female. Um, It's really, it's your body's natural immune response going into sort of an overreaction and almost force quitting normal organ function at the the detriment of your own body. So um, yeah, sepsis, as I said, it can be incredibly quick or it can be incredibly slow, but it tends to feel a bit like a really bad flu. Um, yeah. So, you know, achy joints, um, shivering, fever, some, you know, quite standard symptoms. But I think that so often people think, oh, I don't need to go to the hospital. I'm not a hypochondriac. And actually, right. sepsis, you know, is so common that it's really worth just having that in your mind. Could it could it be sepsis? And that can really save lives. Mm-hmm. So something I'm always keen to always keen to talk about. And I'm being a little tongue in cheek here, but like, so is there a why to it? Like, did you eat like dirt or something when you were a little baby (laughs) or like, is there is, or is it just one of those things where you just have no idea why? So the short answer is I was probably eating dirt, but that probably wasn't the reason. Um, no, look, I was I was a nine-month-old baby, and I had a bad night's sleep. But, you know, for those of you who are children, I'm sure that that isn't too unusual. And, um, yeah, I had, a, I had a bad night's sleep, and I was just wouldn't really – wouldn't stop crying. And, you know, my parents took me to the doctor. Um, the doctor missed the signs, and they said that I just needed some uh, cowpole, which is, I think, uh, British equivalent of – whatever the medicine you give to babies in America is called. Uh, and, um, and my mum wasn't happy with that. She has a motto, which is only the paranoid survive. And um, mm. she decided that I, that, that wasn't good enough. And so she took me to hospital. And um, by the time I arrived, you know, multi-organ failure had set in. And um, I was sort of seconds away from, from things going much, much worse. So um, it can really be touch and go. But yeah, I would avoid de- eating dirt irrespective of sepsis is the short answer. 
And and you, um, I guess you'd say it died seven times. Like they had to bring you back. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, it's I think in my first. Yeah, and I mean, no, I get I rid I'm, of the pretty and just say scary. <laughs> scary, full stop, or period. Right. We, um, yeah, and I think, look, I was, I see it as being very fortunate because I was nine months old, um, and so I myself have no recollection. But I can only imagine for my, you know, my my family and my and my friends at the time how traumatic that must have been to go through. And I think in that first week, they, yeah, again, thought they'd lost me seven times. And um, I often talk about luck a lot when I do my, when I do any speaking about it, because I was lucky to have a, a mum who was so persistent. Um, and I was lucky to live so near a hospital that was so good at the time. And all these sorts of um, happy accidents along the way meant that I'm now here telling you all a little bit about it. So they've done a lot of research with science and, you know, talking about the first six months of life. And even though you don't remember it, it emotionally affects you. Do you think that that trauma has affected you in any way whatsoever in terms of your mindset, in terms of the way you look at life, your perspective? I think it, I think it has to have, to be completely honest. I think that, um, I, again, I'm I, very fortunate with, with the parents I have because they didn't really allow me to be treated differently to my siblings and sort of could have wrapped me up in cotton wool and tried to protect me. But their, their message was very much no barriers, right? Uh, they didn't expect anything different to anything of any of my siblings. And, you know, let me go and, you know, play in the playgrounds, get sand in prosthetics, you know, try all the, you know, I did used to do fencing and try and do karate and all these things that I was rubbish at. But to be honest, it was it was me discovering my own limits. And so I think that initial trauma shaped the environment that they raised me in um, and thankfully gave me a, a good attitude towards some of the problems I've had. But it feels very counterintuitive. Like you, it, it, I've seen kids, uh, you know, who have almost died of cancer, let's say, and their parents go, holy shit, like, I'm so scared. I got to protect this kid. And they coddle them the rest of their life. And because of that, the kids don't really grow emotionally uh, because their parents are so scared to lose them that they, they just go into protection mode. So that's like a really miraculous part of your story is that your parents had that attitude. Yeah. And, you know, again, only the paranoid survive being her motto. I don't think it came naturally to her, um, my mum in particular. But I think that they, um, I think they realized that they, they were often surprised by myself as a, you know, nine month old, one year old baby and what I was able to do. And I think when there are a few surprises of, hang on, he's walking pretty quickly and hang on, he's able to do these things for himself quickly. I think they realized that actually they had no idea what I could do. And so they almost had to then allow, allow me to find out for myself. And I'm very grateful, very grateful they did. I have to add though, I think they've got worse as I've got older. Uh, and I think that things like, you know, let us know when you're home safe or, or, or similar messages, uh, you know, probably don't, uh, don't align with that. Oh, let's just see what happens uh, message that was earlier <laughs> in my life. Yeah, but that's the beautiful thing about parents, though, is they never uh, they never stop worrying about you, no matter uh, no matter where you are, no matter how you're old. I want to kind of just you know maybe take a step uh, you know before we get really too deep into like you know the 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 incredible nature of your family and your upbringing and your personality, and I want to just maybe touch on a little some of the statistic that you just provided when you started. So sepsis as you know as, as an infection and as a disease, you said globally someone dies from sepsis every three and a half seconds. Yeah, is that, correct. Is that that's what you said? Someone so someone it's so it's a like fatally you know it's it's a fatality every three and a half seconds. Yeah, wow. exactly. And again, when you consider that it's the most common like pathway from infection to death, you think about you know, someone who goes into hospital with COVID, their body might respond with, you know, they might catch an infection and then sepsis is what what kills them. So it is so ubiquitous um, that I think often it goes misdiagnosed. And the number of celebrities who, you know, you hear passed away after a short a short illness. Um, you know, I, I, I remember a while ago, uh, Muhammad Ali, you know, I think he went into hospital with a few different things, but it's it's the sepsis afterwards, which is the final the final thing and i think when you when you don't give it that name it you don't allow people to learn about the symptoms how to recognize spot it and and hopefully avoid it yeah and, and it's amazing to think just because it it, it seems so widely you know un understood you know in, in its danger and its gravity 
uh, you know, it's something that like, you know, for myself, like in my own personal experience, like, you know, just as a, as a stroke survivor, um, you know, it's a very similar affliction that, you know, just most people and, and the awareness, um, you know, to the dangers of it and, and how much it affects people nationally and globally. Um, so it's really it's an amazing message to, you know, to point that out and to, you know, just to show just how, you know, how danger dangerous of, uh, you know, of a disease, um, you know, an infection it can be. Yeah, exactly. And so on that, like, you know, I think that um, in the so this is a, a UK statistic, forgive me, I'm, I'm London based, but um, in the UK, it kills more people than breast, bowel and prostate cancer combined. And those are three really important things. But thankfully, we have really good awareness to recognize the symptoms of how to check yourself, you know, regular checkups. But again, when you don't know the name of it, it becomes harder to look out for for those sorts of things. So that's why I think it's so important to go you know let people know that this exists and this is probably similar to what you were saying with your stroke but um they you know there's a saying that i think thankfully this isn't true anymore but they used to say there are two types of people either you know someone who's been affected by sepsis or you've never heard of it right and that sort of building that familiarity with it so that it's you know common knowledge can only be a good thing sure and do you think that affected like how your parents kind of you know you know handled the situation you know with you and then kind of handled you personally um, like afterwards, or, or do you think it was analogous to all that? Uh, I think the latter, to be completely honest. I think um, happy, happy circumstances of the environment that I found myself in, and uh, I'm lucky. You know, I, I tra- trained as a biochemist. You know, that was my degree, and I think I just found myself drawn to science for answers and and understanding a bit more about the disease, um, or you know, and sepsis. Just sort of gave me answers that I was satisfied with, and so I wanted to spread that message. Yeah. And did you find and did you find your parents like kind of getting you into like the world of prosthetics like when like the time became right or was that something that was driven like by you? Yes. So um, there's a few there was a few different journeys. So I mean, I learned to walk on a prosthetic leg, um, and I think my parents were very aware that I would need a prosthetic leg. And then um, my parents split, but I grew up, you know, with uh, my mother and my stepdad, um, and also my father. But um, I'd never wore a prosthetic arm ever. Um, I sort of I learned how to do everything I wanted to do, and I was confident enough that I didn't I didn't mind asking for help if I felt like I had to. Um, and then in 2010, that all changed when my stepfather he read an article in a newspaper about um, a new bionic arm that had come out, and so this was um, I was 13 years old at the time, and I think I'd always read about these things as crazy university projects that you know, someone was building somewhere, but they weren't real and and readily available. Um, So I never really paid much attention to them. But then my stepfather, he uh, got in contact with them, and and they happened to be in town. And so I went for a meeting with them. And then in 2010, I became, you know, fortunately, it worked for me. And I became the youngest person in the world to be fitted with a with a bionic arm at the time. And that's the Oser limb, right? It is, yeah. So it's the Osor, uh, and it's the um, Ilim Quantum, is what it's called. Mm. So I know we're listening in, but I'm going to hold it up and I'm going to move it around a bit because it makes quite a cool noise that you'll yeah. you'll be able yeah. to hear. Um, could you describe? Could you describe to the listeners, kind of, you know, like what what what's going on, like you know, visually? Yeah, of course. So my arm, I have uh, my my arm goes until my the palm of my hand, so I'm missing all the fingers on my left hand, and my arm sits inside a black carbon fiber socket. And at the end of it, it has a um, half titanium, half alloy um, hand, which is covered in a uh, sort of almost opaque glove. Um, And then if I tense the muscles on one side of my forearm, the hand closes, as I just did. And if I tense on the other side, the hand opens. Um, And so it's an amazing piece of kit. It certainly doesn't look like a biological limb. But for me, that's that's another point of pride as well. Hey, so I want to get back to like the amazing dream prosthetics that you have now, which are just insane. But I remember reading that in the beginning, you had like a prosthetic leg that was all put together with like straps and maybe bungees. And uh, and then I thought that you had mentioned in one of your writings that, you know, sometimes people will be fitted with a prosthetic hand in the early days, but it'd just be totally useless. It was It was just to look like a hand or... You know, and it, and, it, and it really struck me that a lot of these prosthetics in the beginning weren't as much about function as they were about just fitting in. Like, okay, look, he has a hand. He's not going to disturb, you know, the society, you know what I mean, by looking different. It really hit me very powerfully. 
that it seemed like some of the you know the beginning prosthetics were more in that range than actually like designed to help you <laughs> you're spot on and so um yeah so my early prosthetic legs i, ha- I give them some sympathy because i was a growing child and you know right. things things were moving a lot so they weren't very good at the beginning and i think my mum in particular recalls a time when my leg fell off in the shopping aisle and she just sort of picked up the leg, put it in the basket and carried on and people <laughs> in, the, in, the, in, the, in the aisles were hor- horrified. Um, but yeah, I think I was, I was doing fine without a hand and I you know, never felt like I needed any help really. And then I think I must have been maybe nine or 10 years old when I went to my, my prosthetic clinic and I always liked seeing what they had that was available. Um, and they had this, be- it was, honestly, it was a beautiful, very realistic looking pros- cosmetic prosthetic hand that was complete with sort of fingernails and hairs and wrinkles. But it, you know, it was it was motionless and it didn't do anything. And as you said, I felt like it was there to appease other people's perception of my disability rather than rather than do anything for me. So I think I wore it for maybe one one day or two days. And at the end, I thought, well, now I can't catch a ball anymore. Now I can't, you know, type like I used to. What was the point in this? So I think I took it off. And I think my parents may have been surprised at the beginning, but I think they sort of worked out that the journey that I was on wasn't one of fitting in or appeasing other people. It was about function. Right. And is that part of sort of the origin of why you really went uh, totally different, which was like, I don't want the prosthetic that looks like skin and has a, has a mole and hairs and, and fingernails and, and toenails. I want, I want to look like Darth Vader. I want to look, you know, I want to look like a badass. I, I want to look sleek and 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 have kind of a mach- a different kind of like I think Hugh her calls it machine beauty, right? Exactly. And so I think it was you're completely right. It was a few years after that my legs went from looking sort of cosmetic to very you know bionic, and they went to black carbon fiber and a blue pole, and I had one of them that was leopard print and one that was covered in postage stamps. Like it was a it was a canvas for me to sort of express myself. And then um yeah, when I had the choice of what did I want the arm to look like, it was it was a real no brainer. This is to me is one of the coolest pieces of technology I've been fortunate enough to come across. And I want to show it off to people. This I don't want this to blend in. It's a bit like people, and you know, not me, but it's people who get a you know a very exciting sports car and they make it neon because they want people to see it. Right? This is my <laughs> maybe equivalent of that. But your dad had a little like uh, maybe fear of that. Like at least I read that he was like, "Why do you want to like bring attention to yourself? Like right? Like why? Maybe you want to just kind of blend in more, right? So." So maybe there was a little bit of a kind of a conflict. Yeah, I think I'm lucky that they they all my parents sort of would always voice their opinion, but leave the decision to me. Um, right. And so my dad did. I think that the arm was one point less so, but the big one I got a I got a sprinting blade, you know, to go running on. Um, and I wanted to wear it all the time, but obviously it didn't. You couldn't wear it with like a shoe or something, and so he he sort of questioned that you know won't won't you stand out a lot with it and i was thinking to me that was kind of the point but again i was lucky that i was raised or they raised me independently enough that it said you know if i if I, maybe if i'd have made a mistake a few years later i could have said wow you were right but actually more often than not and thankfully to this point things so far have been um yeah been pretty good was there a moment though when like or maybe a series of moments when you said, like, I don't want to blend in. I want to, I, there's a joy in, in being different, like in being unique, you know? Yeah, and I think that I think that first leg when I went from looking cosmetic to, to the black carbon fiber was kind of a, that's a bold choice. Let's see if, if, he, if it, he thinks it's the right call and let's see if he wants to go back afterwards. Um, so I'd say that was the first one. And then the next one was, again, when I got the arm and, and I had the choice of the cosmetic one and they can they can match it to your skin tone. But anyone who's uh, familiar with prosthetics knows that it's always quite sort of a lifelike skin coloration. It's always, it looks closer to kind of a pastely chalk, you know, like it's not, it's, it's not too accurate. And so I think that was the next one where it was really clear that actually he's, he's making very clear decisions here. Yeah, a friend of mine said they don't really look ever, they don't quite look right. No, and I think there's a theory that says that the closer it looks to being lifelike, the almost more it stands out. 
right? Because until it completely blends in, you're going to be like, something's going to seem slightly off. And then it draws right. your eye that little bit more and you go, oh, what is that? But um, right. mine's very clearly the other way. Patrick, it's also really fascinating because not only I, I love when, you know, when Eric was just talking about it, how how you're you're a fan of being different, like like it's something that you enjoy and you like. But also, you know, I think which is 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 really amazing is just how you also lean into it, right? And how you lean into the role of technology, you know, in you know, in you know, in that in that sense of being different. And it's 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 pretty incredible just how how you've done that. I mean, what 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 a, what a part of your experience do you see like moving forward, like as as continuing within innovation like that? Yeah, I think now is a brilliant time to be disabled. Um, it's probably the best time to be disabled so far. But I think that, you know, the future and tomorrow is is the next best time because there's this wonderful overlap between disability and technology where, um, you know, if, if I didn't have a prosthetic arm or leg, um, I wouldn't be able to do almost everything that I do on a daily basis. Um, and, you know, for people with different disabilities, you know, screen readers or wheelchairs, or it's like there's so many options out there that make things so much more accessible. There's a long way to go. But um, I'm looking forward to what technology can offer, but also um, without without losing, you know, I think disability is not a dirty word. I think it's an awesome word. And I think that it... Um, it describes a sense of otherness to me um, without making a um, without making too many sort of assumptions about my ability. And I think that it's 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 getting exciting now that even small things like I can I can hold a cold or a hot drink in my hand that that if you were able bodied, you you would find too hot or too cold. That's an advantage right there. Um, there are things like this, and I think there's only going to be more and more of those coming up. I have to say, I'm very jealous of Hugh, who's able to change his height, because yeah. that, unfortunately, <laughs> I'm, I'm stuck to the biological one, unfortunately. What's beautiful about that, like, you know, you know what we were just saying before, what, what Hugh heard described, like, uh, you know, from like, you know, the beauty aspect, you know, of, of bionics, um, you know, is that it creates creativity. And it's, it's, you know, it's technology, and it's innovation, and it's progress, and it's moving forward, you know, at the speed of light. But it's also like just so creative in its in its adaptations, and and I think that's and I think it's something that uh, a lot of people get should get an incredible amount of credit for, including yourself. Oh, absolutely, I think though that um, it's you're right with creativity. It's going to be very exciting. You know, my 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 prosthetic arm has five fingers um, because that's what humans biologically do. But who knows if if in a few years, if one with six might work better, or maybe one with four, or you know, like there are so many options out there that. Um, I think it's very exciting to see what they'll what they'll dream up next. <laughs> I like so that the, the six the six figure uh, the six figure bionic arm. <laughs> exactly. You look like a crab. That'd be cool. Yeah, <laughs> Eric, Eric, can we get on that list? <laughs> yeah. So, so I I want to get into the whiz bang things that you're. It, it's the the island pulse, or did you or do you, are so, you on to uh, a new one? A new, there's a new version now, so it's the island quantum. Oh, the yeah. island quantum. So, um, I I read that you could. There's an app that you use on your iPhone that you have different like kind of buttons and so you can make different hand functions. Yeah. So yeah, go through the different hand functions or the different, you know, uh, kind of shapes that you can, that you can use with your iPhone. Yeah. I'm going to have to bring them up as I talk to you because there's, I think there's 36 different prefigured ones that, um, wow. Wow. But if you think about, I mean, lots of them are variations yeah. on different things. So there is a point, um, which you can, you know, an index finger point, which I would use maybe if I'm typing, um, right. or if I wanted to operate my phone as an example. Uh, and then there's lots of different types of pinch. So there's pinch with your, your thumb and your index finger, but your remaining three fingers held open. Uh, but then also sometimes the opposite might be easier. So with your, uh, with your, Thumb and your uh, your thumb and your index finger pinching, but the other three fingers closed. So um, I'm holding it up, and anybody listening um, just with audio won't be able to see. But it's the difference between having these uh, your sort of latter three fingers closed or having your latter three fingers um, open, and it's just depending on what you're trying to pick up. But there could also be a you know a tripod grip where you pinch with your middle finger, your index finger, and your thumb. Um, or you could have a lateral grip, which I use quite a lot if I'm reading a book where it's almost like a thumbs up type grip. And that's to hold a book or a menu I find really useful. Mm. Like what would you do? Because I know it was a big deal when you tied your shoes for the first time with your prosthetic. So what would you like? What button would you push for that? Or would it be a combo? 
So that I would use probably the lateral, so the sort of thumbs up type grip, um, because you can you've got quite a long surface area to to catch, for want of a better word, the laces with. Um, but yeah, I learned to tie my shoelaces when I was thirteen, which is later than most. Uh, and the same day, I cut up my food for the first time. So it was a big a big day. And and those are those are those are monumental milestones, Patrick. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's those those are things that uh, you know you know listeners and, and individuals you know who are uh, you know a part of the no barriers uh, you know community you know understand and, and and can relate to you know. But it's it's just it's it's amazing to just show how like the small things just make the biggest difference. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I still can't tie my shoes. Right. And, and having the, I'm, I'm almost envious and jealous of the fact that you, you know, you can, right. Um, and it's, it's amazing to just highlight those small things, how they have just such a big impact. Yeah, absolutely. And is there really an app or excuse me, a button on there where you can give someone the finger? <laughs> so the, I think, or the is that a joke? Answer, I think the te- well, there's, there's custom gesture. And there's custom ah. grip, and so I'll leave those two to your imagination to work out what they are. But um, what if you, you gave put... somebody the finger and they beat you up, and then you could sue Oser because you're like, look, I it wasn't know, my malfunction. Yeah, I have to tell oh, no, you, was, I have to tell you, there was a. I went to a, a friend's for dinner, and I was sitting near some people that I didn't know, and they were, you know, I'm very, I enjoy talking about the arm, and um, they said, oh, so can you pick things up? And I said, yeah, I'm very confident. And someone was playing on the app on my phone a few seats away. And so I picked up a glass of red wine and someone pressed a button, not paying attention. And it spilled all over someone sitting next to me. <laughs> and I had to apologize, but also explain it wasn't my fault. So yeah, you know. <laughs> jackass had my app. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so Patrick, I've just, I've been curious also. So I get the fact that you would use this, uh, you would be able to create different hand shapes with your iPhone, but I've never quite understood the stuff that Hugh talks about, which is like beyond that, which is I think and my hand does a certain thing. I, I don't really get the connection. It's been explained to me a few times. Is there a way where like a dummy could figure, could understand that connection between the brain thinks and the hand moves? So, so the short answer is um, I think you're going to have to ask someone else. Um, but, <laughs> but I'll caveat that with it's, you know, I've now been using this arm for coming up to 13 years and it's become subconscious for me in a way that I, it wasn't at the beginning. And so for me, the first time I picked something up with it, it was so conscious and I had to think, you know, constantly about not dropping it where my arms were. Whereas now it's almost, you know, it's that feeling of, it's gone to a different part of my brain, right? So I don't consci- I don't consciously think tense the top of my forearm. I think open the hand. So I guess it's that familiarity and becoming an expertise that you know I'm sure that you you both have in in your different areas. You know, I mean, I guess it's something like the brain sends a thought to your muscles, and 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 that's like sent with electrical impulses in some way that contract and expand the muscle to be able to kind of work with the prosthesis. Right? Has something to do with that. Exactly. So in terms of how this one specifically works, there there is an electrode that sits on the top of my forearm and one that sits on the bottom. There's nothing surgically implanted in my arm at all. Um, but it's And if I can tense the muscle on the top of my forearm, the hand opens and tense the bottom, it closes. Now, the tricky right. bit there is being able to tense one on one side without doing the other. I can't for the life of me do it on my other arm. You know, it's something that I've learned how to do. But I guess it's like any skill, right? It becomes conscious and then subconscious. And before you know it, you're not thinking about it. So you can't, so you're not able to control uh, that prosthetic arm on your, on your right arm, only on your left arm. No. I mean, look, if I take it off, I can sort of touch the electrodes with my, with my other hand and maybe like rub them to to Mm -hmm. mimic it. But, um, but no, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work on any other way, really. Interesting. When you went in for your, uh, to get your arm, um, you said that, like, hey, they have to decide whether I'm a good candidate or not, right? So yeah. are there people that wouldn't be good candidates and why? So like, what makes do... a good candidate or, or a <laughs> nod candidate? 
I, I think it's to do with the muscle, um, the strength of, and the, of the muscle sites in your arm. So I know that uh -huh. um, I have two clear muscle sites that they were able to target. Um, right. But some people might only have one due to the way that their limb is, you know, either amputated or, or how they were born. Um, but, you know, I know that there are some arms that you can control it with one muscle site. But again, that's pretty alien to me. I don't necessarily understand how um how that how they're able to control it but um i think it's to do with the length of the residual limb and the amount of muscle that you're able to control in there got it wow patrick i've got a question for you you know this is so amazing but i you know as as a paralympic uh, athlete and you know, i'm just dying to know what it felt like to carry the olympic torch um in uh, in 2012 as you know as uh, you know as a, as a native uh, you know of the united kingdom you know on your home soil what was that what did that feel like Honestly, it was probably the biggest adrenaline rush I've had in my life. So I would have been, I was 15 years old and I think I got nominated a few months before that. And, you know, you sort of think, oh, mate, it'd be lovely if it happens. But as time went on, it got closer and closer and I was told I was going to do it. And then I was given a date and then they gave me the location, which was Trafalgar Square, which for those of you who are familiar with the UK, you know, it's sort of one of London's biggest tourist attractions. Just a little bit famous. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so... You know, I mean, my dad sort of made the joke that oh, they've given him one of the only bits in the country that's got stairs in. Like, brilliant. Let's see. Like, <laughs> couldn't they have got a little easier on him? Um, what if somebody but, pushed the wrong button on the app and your <laughs> your torch went flying, <laughs> like through a car window or something? I had nightmares about you know, man man drops torch. You know, I was thinking, oh god, it's come all the way from Athens. I can't let it down now. But um, but no, it was it was really it was a real privilege and a real honor. And um, yeah, I mean, Chicago Square was chock chocker full of sort of 8,000 people. And obviously they're there to see the flame, not me, but I still had a pretty triumphant moment standing at the top of the stairs, torch in one hand, waving with the bionic one on the other side. Um, so it was, uh, yeah, something I'll never forget. And I'm fortunate that I get to keep the, the torch and it now lives in my living room. So sure. it's quite yeah. a fun thing to have, have lying around. I, I hope that's on the mantle at the top of the trophy case. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey Patrick, you've lived this amazing life, and you've in, with at, like this life where you're using these bionics. But so I was researching you this morning a little bit, and my uh, manager Skyler, we were talking. And he's like, you know, I have a I have a, a friend, a family, and they have a kid who's missing a hand, and he tried to get a a really high tech prosthetic, and insurance wouldn't cover it. So do you ever think about that, like? Man, it's amazing that you're able to live this extraordinary life, but it's is it is it accessible for the average person the way medical insurance works today? So, to be completely honest, I'm not aware so much what it's like in the states. I know that in the UK, um we just had so this type is called a multi-articulating prosthetic arm. That's it sort of fancy long name and um, that means that all the fingers are controlled individually uh, and our national health service approved those in in england um mm, now so if, if you live in this country it absolutely um they're originally made in scotland so scotland had them first sort of available on their on their national health service um but i think in different places it, it entirely depends on um on what health you know what the government does and i know that in the uk fortunately it's something we're we're quite strong on Good. Well, maybe you guys will be sort of the, 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 the seed and that will extend out to America at some point. I hope yeah. so, because there are, some, there are some amazing devices out there. And these do uh, something I'm really passionate about speaking about is this isn't just letting someone tie their shoelaces, right? This is the way they, um, the way they can go out for dinner by themselves, the way they can carry themselves and wear, say, like a jacket that they don't need to roll the arm up on. Like this does so many more things for you than just pure function. And I don't think you can put a price on a price on that. Right. For me, it's all about what it gives you. And it it's it's life changing. Wow. Powerful. I also found your uh, uh, your story of getting fitted with your new blade, your your leg, uh, really fascinating because you go in there and you have, a, I guess, a prosthetist and a physio. What is yeah. it called? A, 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 yeah, a physio, physiotherapist. physiotherapist yeah. And they watch you walk and all this stuff and they realize one of your legs is like an inch shorter than the other. I mean, it just seems like that process is really fascinating somehow – you know, you didn't get, you didn't go through that process the first time. 
Yeah, I have, again, I have a lot of sympathy for them when you're a growing kid, because these things, you know, they lasted me six months when I was growing up. And, and so what they do is you get a new one, and it would be an inch longer than your than your biological leg. And then you I have, see. it slowly levels out, <laughs> and then it slowly you limp the other way. So Got it. it it's you know it's not it's not easy but also the text changed so much and um again Ossa who who um provide my arms and my legs now they um they've got this amazing sort of you know the, they're all components that fit together and they've got this new sort of extendable component on the leg so that okay my the the shape of my stump might change but if it's just a height thing you can just get an allen key and you know kind of go go gadget leg and before you know it be be have the right length again so really so you better. can actually adjust it and create a longer length wow that's cool yeah exactly and that would have been really helpful to me as a kid but you didn't like walking at first uh with the old prosthetic so you got on this new prosthetic and one i i i surmised that it was kind of different like it the way you strike your heel and roll forward was all different so you had to kind of almost relearn how to walk but it seemed like it was pretty fast and then Next thing you know, you're loving walking again. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because I think what it becomes your normal very quickly, and then afterwards, you, sort of once you get exposed to something new and, and better, you you all of a sudden go, wow, how did I live like that before? Um, and you know, this new leg, it's there's so much energy that's stored in the spring of the of the of the carbon fiber blade in the foot that it it gives back, and so I realized I wasn't sort of lugging around is probably quite a strong way of putting it but i was getting so much from my foot and it felt so much more analogous to my biological leg where your your heel and your you know and your toes naturally push off the ground yeah wow patrick are you uh i mean have you gotten into like the bionics you know from uh, from a lower limb uh you know perspective uh, you know, trying to get into, uh, you know, the biomechatronics, um, you know, from, you know, smart and, you know, artificial intelligent and machine learning, um, you know, perspective for your legs like you have with your arm. So I've, I've started more recently. Um, I so since since an article that I wrote in The Guardian um, a few years ago, I've been fitted with uh, a new leg from Ossa. It's called the Proprio. Uh, and it's got a microprocessor in the ankle. Um, and so you charge it every night next to your phone and next to my arm. Um, and it's very clever because what it does is it detects the slope, the, the gradient of the slope that you're walking up or down and adjusts the ankle accordingly. And so you wouldn't believe how much a difference it makes. If I go on like a Sunday walk and I walk up a hill, having a foot that equates to that and, and works it out is brilliant. But the, the biggest thing that it does is it also aligns itself depending on the height of the shoe that you wear. Now, I mean, I don't wear stilettos or anything, but even <laughs> just like from trainer to trainer, it makes a huge difference having that alignment and it affects, you know, your knee, your hip, your back. And so it just makes everything much more comfortable. Yeah. And don't worry, Patrick, Eric had to learn, uh, you know, the lesson of not wearing stilettos, uh, you know, the hard way himself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Blind and wearing stilettos. It's hard. Killer combo. Yeah. <laughs> hey, let's go back to before pros- uh, these high tech prosthetics. So when you were a kid, you wanted to play rugby. It was like your hmm. dream to play rugby. And they're like, no way, man, you break the prosthetic or the prosthetic's going to break somebody's head. So uh, you were like, okay, took prosthetic off how the hell do you play rugby <laughs> were you hopping on one leg like uh, bring us through that exercise yeah, yeah i mean <laughs> i think the short answer to how do you play rugby without with only one leg i think the answer is very badly to be completely honest <laughs> and um, don't forget no hands <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, right i mean <laughs> they weren't let's not shortchange you here patrick <laughs> exactly it was a tough gig Um, Yeah, I mean, all my best mates are rugby players. And, you know, it's a big thing in in the UK at school that you play. And, um, and yeah, I just the the teachers, I understandably, but inconveniently for me deemed that it was unfair to the other kids because my leg posed a health and safety risk to them. And I was thinking, to be honest, I thought that sounds a lot more like their problem than mine. And I was pretty upset that I was, I was being punished for it. But yeah, I said, well, if I can't play, um, and then my stepdad said, well, why don't you try taking your leg off? And again, I think I did it twice because it was, I was terrible, but I kind of wanted to prove (laughs) a point to my, to my teachers at the time that they weren't going to stop me. Yeah, that's a no barriers mindset right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> true and true. You know, you know how we're like laughing and stuff and joking around on this podcast, having having fun? It seems like humor is a big part of your approach to life. Um, 
you know, if you got into it with some disability um, organizations and, and sort of the politics around disability, they would always say, hey, you know, you know, as a blind person, don't make a blind joke. It's demeaning, right? But I've always thought that's like impossible to live in the world without laughing at the crazy shit that happens to you. And it's not like you're making fun of yourself, although you maybe are a little bit, but what's your approach to, to humor as like kind of a coping mechanism in life? Oh, I think it's key. Um, for me, I was always taught, you know, if there's an elephant in the room, you should introduce it. Uh, and right. I think as soon as you do that, it makes people so much more comfortable, right? And all of a sudden, they kind of, they don't need to think, oh, can I ask? Should I? Is it appropriate or not? And like, it's so it's so important that we are able to talk about taboo generally, right? And and, and ask people where their limits are, and then and then you know, but not not assume them for other people because I'm sure you know, Eric and Billy, both of you, you must get people assume you can't do things, and then when you at the end of it, you say, actually, I've done all of these things. And I just, uh, yeah, for me, humor is the vehicle by which you make people comfortable with with your differences and usually with theirs as well, right? So my friends and I, they'll tease me, you know, pretty brutally, you know, for, for being disabled or having a prosthetic arm. And then I'll tease them right back about something else. And it's, you know, it's obviously different when you're close to people, but I think it's a, a cornerstone of, of being comfortable with yourself. Uh, putting you on the spot, but give us your best prosthetic joke then. <laughs> oh, I mean, the easiest is always, do you want a hand with that? I mean, that's just... Okay, that's, ah. that's, I like it, I like it. That's too easy. I mean, yeah. that's a smooth criminal right there, Patrick. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, you're pulling my leg quite a lot or like, you know, there, there, there's so many like easy ones. I mean... You're pulling uh, my leg so say, hard it actually came off. Yeah, I have to say one Eric, I always can thought... You, Eric, can you see how funny that is? Yeah, that's great. That's good. Yeah. Smell you later. Shop. That's my joke. Smell you later. Uh-huh. Go Low ahead. Blows all around. Yeah, I am. Um, I have to confess, I find that I bring it up in more uncomfortable situations more, more than anything. And um, I remember once again at school, I was quite an eager kid and I was a bit of a nerd and calling out answers to things. And a brand new teacher, quite frustrated, turned around and said, who is it that doesn't have a hand to put up? And I think his face, when he saw me at the end of it, he must have thought he'd lost his job there and then. But um, <laughs> again, thankfully, we let him laugh about it. Pa- Patrick, this isn't a competition, but I'm going to beat you because uh, when I was in middle school, we were having this health class and they were talking about the myths of um, around masturbation. And they said one of them was that it makes you go blind. And everyone freaking looked at me and I was like, quit looking at me. <laughs> yeah, not you definitely true. went on that one. You definitely went on that one. <laughs> well, there's, uh, you know, so Patrick, do you think so, you know, in, in terms of like, you know, that, you know, that, that coping mechanism, there's at, at least for, you know, I think the three of us can all, you know, relate to this because we've, you know, lived most, if not all of our lives, you know, you know, with our, you know, with our disability and, you know, with our challenges. Right. I mean, do you see that as like a gift, like, as like, as a part of your life that you use it like a, as such and a strength because you've, you've had this like your entire life? hundred percent. I mean, I'm sure some of my closest friends would say I'm not funny even slightly, but we'll give them, we'll give them that one. <laughs> um, but yeah, for me, it's a really big part of open openness and honesty. And, and also I think that most people are just curious, right? They want to have those conversations. They want to learn. And I mean, to, you know, something else that I'm, I've been working on recently is I've, I've just finished writing a children's book on prosthetics and bionics. Um, cool. and that it was, for, it's for ages nine plus, and there isn't one currently out there. And I just thought but children in particular are so naturally inquisitive about these things. And I hope that, um, you know, it introduces those topics in a way that is, you know, humorous, lighthearted, but also doesn't shy away from things. And it's, that's, that's the balance you need to get to, right? Because th- there's nothing worse than being patronized yeah. personally. Well, let's, uh, let's get a good plug for, uh, for that. Yeah. When, when's that? it let's, coming what's out? What's the name of it? When's it coming out? How do we get it? So, yeah, thank you. So it's, um, it's coming out in March, 2023. So we're sort of four, four months away, three months away or so. It is called Human 2.0. And it's a brief history of prosthetics and implantables. So it explores um, humanity's journey with prosthetics. So sort of the earliest uh, arms, legs, eyes, ears, pacemakers. It then talks a little bit about how modern equivalents of all of those things work. But the bit that I'm most proud of in it, to be honest, is it talks about a, the future of what's available out there. And, you know, some of Hugh's work, Hugh Her's work is in there. 
But also, you know, I think that the really exciting thing I think for a nine-year-old to learn about is that there's there's a bit of an ethics section on, well, what is right? And, you know, just because someone is missing an arm, does that mean they need to wear a prosthesis? Or because somebody's blind, do they need an, a cochlear implant, uh, you know, an eye implant, sorry. Right, you know, right. so it sort of addresses some of those those issues because I think children just don't know about that. And I'm pleased that it doesn't shy away from those things. And I should add, but by the way, it has a Hugh, uh, it has a full word by Hugh Herr in there who also oh, talks about All right. the diversity. That's really that we, neat. We're going to see. Dr. Herr. So, wow. Yeah, it's very exciting. And it's for That's another fantastic. podcast, but I mean, I found it fascinating that you, you would mention that uh, like f- they found in Pharaoh's tombs in Egypt, prosthetic feet and arms and things like that. So, I mean, Prosthetics have been around for thousands and thousands of years. Yeah, and these things come into common parlance so easy. One of my favorite ones is um, there was a count in Germany who who lost his arm in war. And um, he want, he loved fighting. He loved war. And so he wanted to go back to it. So they made him a suit of armor with a metal hand on it. And he was known to be really brutal. And that's where the phrase he ruled with an iron fist comes from, is this idea of like this one person who kind of you know, went on from there. So it's countless throughout history. And wow. it's just some exciting things to learn. Yeah, I guess uh, when we think, you know, when we're feeling sorry for ourselves, we could say, hey, at least I wasn't beat to death with an iron <laughs> fist. Exactly. Yeah. What a way to go. Hey? Right. Wow. <laughs> Hey, you also, um, Patrick, have said very clearly that being disabled has improved your life. Now, I hear the spectrum of that. You know, like I hear people say, it ruined my life, destroyed my life, uh, whatever, I'm just surviving now, you know, or, or, you know, hey, there's pluses and minuses, but, but, but you, you actually say it's improved your life. So tell me about that. Yeah. And so look, I wouldn't, I'd be lying if I said it was 100% positive, right? Um, I'm terrible at juggling. I'm not as quick as my friends running about. Like there are things I can't do, but all the things that I'm most proud of, I've done not in spite of, but also not, but also not purely because of my disability, but I wouldn't have done them otherwise. So, you know, for me, carrying the Olympic torch to Trafalgar Square is one of my most cherished memories. I don't think that would have happened if I if if I wasn't disabled. Um, you know, speaking at, at TEDx Teen and writing articles to the Guardian, having a children's book coming out are all things that have come about with my disability. Um, so whilst I can't imagine my life without it, um, all the things that I think I've done that I'm particularly proud of are because of the things that make me unique, and that's why. I celebrate those, right? And I think that all, you know, both of you as well, some of the amazing things that I know about both of you are things that not because of your disabilities and not in spite of, but as part of you, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's beautiful. I think it's really really good because a lot of people fight it. You know, they they fight it. They don't integrate their disability into their life. Like I, you know, I used to think of blindness as like this disease, this evil thing that, was destroying my life. And, you know, one of the best days of my life was when I went, wait a second, blindness is just like having brown hair or being tall or short. It's a thing, you know, and, and, and I just have to learn to adapt. Yeah, exactly. And I think that I find myself in this weird middle ground where then people will say, you're a superhero and it's incredible. And I go, no, 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 no. You know, I, I bat away sort of the patronizing people as quickly as I do those who say, oh, God, I'm so sorry to hear that. But, um, you know, it's I think it's the right place to be in. It's a very uh, it's a very fine line to, uh, to to navigate, you know, just in terms of, uh, you know, just conversations and, and you know, getting uh, getting as much you know word as you can possibly out in the right way. Exactly. And it feels like my Britishness coming through, but it means that I end up complaining about both sides. So, um, you know, I uh, guess it's just me, to be honest. <laughs> but it also but it also highlights, you know, our, our no barriers, you know, life elements and just the way that, you know, all of that inner ties into uh, to no barriers and, and everything, you know, that the organization represents and, and what Eric has created and, and, and put forward and, and how you fit into that and how, how those aspects of your life, you know, tie directly into it as well. Oh, exactly. And I mean, I was listening to this podcast before I had the, the, you know, the good fortune of meeting Eric this summer. And there are some incredible stories and, and on, on here. 
But um, I have to say as well, like for me, the most important thing about disability is that spectrum of opinion, right? And if you expected sort of these billion people to all think the same, you'd be putting them into a box, right? And so there's such wonderful diversity on here that I, I hope the next person who's on disagrees with me, you know, massively. And then the person after that with them again, like it's just, it's a really exciting area to to explore. And Eric, you've done an amazing thing building this this community. So thank you very much. Well, Patrick, if anybody disagrees with you, all I do is just show them your iron fist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. beat them with that iron fist. All right, Patrick. So now that you have a biochemistry degree, you're graduate. You've graduated. What's the next five years look like for you? Ah, oh, very difficult question. I wish I knew the answer. So uh-huh. um, again, uh, with my that's my why I asked the probing questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, with my children's book coming out in March, that's something I'm really excited to see where it could take me. Um, I want to write eventually, you know, the adult side of that story, which is exploring the concept of disability throughout history uh, and also where we're going, um, be that in an educational setting or maybe in a, again, in more in more literature, because I think it's something that a lot of people are fascinated about. And again, I hark on about this, but disability is the most unique marginalized group because anybody can join it at any point in their life, right? So for me, it's something that we all benefit from learning about. But, you know, apart from that, I um, I, I currently work in advertising and I absolutely love it. Um, and to me, there's some amazing brands out there. And I don't work in specifically in inclusion, but there are some amazing brands out there doing some really awesome things to change how they treat consumers. And um, that's something as well that I'm I'm far from done with yet. So I guess the next five years, what am I going to do? <laughs> Sounds like quite a lot, to be honest, but uh, I'm quite <laughs> excited about it. And you get a lot into the sepsis uh, awareness, uh, you know, community as well, right? You know, just promoting, you know, just knowledge around it. Exactly. I, I rarely go to anything without talking to someone about it, unfortunately for them. But uh, I think it's an, an important part of the role as well, because, again, I shout because not everyone else can. So happy to do it. Well, Patrick, I'm stealing a UK expression. This was a brilliant podcast. <laughs> this, this is awesome, man. Thank you so much. No, really. It was so insightful, really fun very joyful and and our community appreciates you so much and uh, i hope to draw you in and maybe meet in person again and uh maybe have an adventure or two together yeah patrick you're uh you're, you're shining light on a lot of places that you know that need light and it's uh it, it's great to uh, it's great to see and it's great to hear um and yeah we can get you on a bike and maybe we can put you on the uh, on the front of eric's tandem and really see how uh, how danger manifests <laughs> Yeah, Billy would, got on the front, and he cr- we we did really well, except we did we crash did, one time, and there was, was a little a minor, bit of blood. It was it was a controlled, <laughs> a tiny it was a bit controlled of blood. fall, we'll call it. Yeah, sign crash, me up. Right? I have to say, sign me up. I'd absolutely love that. So no, there thank you, you again for for having me right. on and for uh, for building this incredible community. So I really appreciate awesome. all of it. Thanks, Patrick. No barriers thank to you. everyone. No barriers. <laughs>